You're listening to Trek FM. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. You fought in the Clone Wars? Yes. I was once a Jedi Knight, the same as your father. I'm Ahsoka. Master Yoda sent me. I have a bad feeling about this. Go, go, go! In laser clankers! All batteries return fire! Now you die. I have been waiting for you. They, like me, believe in the chosen one. Jedi scum. Roger, Roger. Oh, no. I don't work for free. Follow me, boys! Here's where the fun begins. This is a very dangerous place for me to be. A disturbance in the Force, The Force will decide. We are peacekeepers. This is our chance. There's no time to argue. Incoming! Here we go. Welcome, everyone, to Trek FM's local watering hole where we've got hosts from the network dropping by, friends all the time. We just talk things geeky. Um, I have actually ordered something a little light tonight from uh, Ruby. I've been going through a little Rigelian flu, so I've I've got some ginger ale, and uh, I've got a great friend here with me tonight, John Mills. I love having you on the show. Well, and, and I love being here, and uh, Ruby has promised me that I can double down on what you would normally be drinking this evening, and uh, I feel up to the challenge. Oh, nice. Uh, good, good. Well, I'm really excited that you're here because um, we've done a few Star Wars episodes here on, on the 602 because, well, we, we love Star Wars. And our first contact from a listener uh, came from uh, Nick. And Nick Anastasio works for ILM and was an editor on The Clone Wars and he just wrote in about uh, liking the show and, and enjoying what we had said about Star Wars and uh, really appreciating what we had had to say about Star Wars. And I'm so excited that to talk about the Clone Wars for the first time on this show, we have Nick with us tonight. How's it going, Nick? Good. It's going great. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Um, as you as you mentioned, uh, yeah, I... Called in a few weeks ago. I actually uh, wrote you an email, um, if I remember correctly, Matthew. I I was listening mm-hmm. to uh, um, the show that you guys had done on. Uh, I was just after the release of the episode seven, and uh, the Rebels season two trailers came out, and um, I was listening uh, to your show at work, and and uh, I've been <laughs> pulling a lot of long hours, and uh, and I've been listening to a lot of Trek FM. Uh, uh, the last six months or so, and uh, and you started to talk about the F7 uh, trailer, and then um, you went on to uh, Rebels and Rex, and there was just so much that um, made me feel appreciative um, for 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 everything, for the way you guys were talking about it, for the the, the images themselves, and made me think about Dave. Um, and the respect that he had for the characters that he created and those storylines, both in, in the Clone Wars and Rebels. Then it, you know, flashed me back to the Clone Wars. And, you know, there's such a thread in my life, um, as we may we may delve into a little more, uh, that all of a sudden I kind of had this sort of like giant flashback loop, you know, going back to the past 10 years and then beyond that. And, and it made me feel really, really appreciative for, for, um, for, um, 
what you guys were saying and, and how you were talking about the show and and um and I just wanted to share that. So that's yeah, the, the our first our first connection was just kind of had this uh, had this impulsive desire to just write and say, "Hey, thanks." You know, that was awesome. It it made my day to to uh, to hear to hear the episode and and then we uh we started to chat. So I'm delighted right. to be here today. And I know it made John and I's day when we I, I shared that with him, and and we both saw that that this came from somebody who actually worked on Star Wars, and it it blew us away. And I just want to say thank you for writing us because you know being a podcaster is sometimes a a lonely business. We don't always get a lot of feedback uh, from listeners, and to to know that you had taken the time uh, to to write us had had meant a ton to both of us. I mean, it it just meant the world to us. Well, you know, um, you know, th- thank you again to you guys, and I want to I want to say something to you both and and to all the listeners out there, uh, fans of Star Wars and Star Trek and and in any other genre, you know, um, all the geeks of the world. Uh, I, I've been I've been just on the fan side of things, still am, but when I was just on the on the fan side of things, and and you know, you read the press junkets, you hear you hear the people, whether they're creatives, actors, writers, directors talk about um the stories they they write um and the the movies they make and so on and and you know of course they invest themselves of course they're going to represent themselves as fans um and you wonder at times you know just how much of a fan is this person of of this franchise of this world of these characters that they portray that they write and and how much of it is them doing what they have to do which there's nothing wrong with which is you know helping to sell the product that they created um, and I'm sure that there's there's that uh, at times, but I can tell you from the bottom of my heart that that my experience on the Star Wars side of things and the Lucasfilm side of things is in the nearly two decades I've worked with the company now, almost everyone I've worked with is is a big fan um, on some level or another, um, fan of the company of the legacy or or outright huge Star Wars geek huge sci-fi geek um definitely by far i would i would i would say um and i I apologize to all my ilm buddies um when i was with lucas animation uh, cutting the clone wars we were the biggest crew of fans and i think it was a combination of experience and talent um dedication professionalism but also genuine passion um and that really is what what made the show come together starting with Dave and George and and um the way that George became aware of of Dave's talent and the way that they made their connection and we can talk about that later and how that grew in my from what I saw in my experience came from Dave at the source of his the split between his genuine passion as a Star Wars fan uh, which George saw from the very beginning and his 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 talent and his professionalism and experience. Um, so, you know, we we are for sure uh, the real deal when it comes to to fans actually creating the thing for other fans. Uh, that that is so cool uh, to know. And I know that one of the things that uh, we always like to ask uh, on the Trek FM shows uh, is how people came to Star Trek. And since we're talking about Star Wars and the Clone Wars. 
what is your initial touch point? What it, what is your first memory of coming to Star Wars, coming to be a fan? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Well, um, I'm going to take a slight detour with Star Trek, since this is originally a Star Trek podcast, <laughs> one, because they're connected. Um, one of my, if not my first memory, I, I was always very close to my dad growing up. Um, uh, he and I, you know, bonded. He was my role model, my hero. And... Um, one of my first life memories is when I was five years old. Uh, so that would have been four, four or five and 75, 76, um, watching Star Trek with him, um, in, in reruns. Uh, now I, I grew up overseas. I grew up, um, partly in Europe, partly in Africa. Um, French was my, my first language, English, my second language. At the time I was speaking French, barely, um, any English. And uh, we were watching Star Trek in English, and and my dad was a big fan um, of TOS, and we would um, go. I, I have the you know these kind of like memories that are filtered through through uh, that haze of early childhood. I remember that it was on the weekend, and and we would go up because we only had a small black and white TV in their bedroom, and we would go up. Um, to their bedroom and sit on the bed and he'd turn it on and he was totally engrossed and I was engrossed because I saw how much he loved it and of course it was sci-fi and there were spaceships and even though I couldn't understand um I was totally into it and what actually made it even better for me was that I would ask my dad what what they were saying because I didn't understand enough to catch it all and I was very young and my dad would tell me and he was so into it that it was almost like he would make it come alive even more so so I, I, that would kind of double the excitement. So, like I said, that was 75, 76. Um, I have actually, it's funny, um, I have no memory of, of seeing New Hope um, in the theaters when it came out. Um, I'm not sure whether whether I did or not. I think I did, but my, my parents are too old to remember now. <laughs> um, but so then fast forward to 1980, roughly five years later, and that's where the, the Star Wars lightning hit me uh, and hit me hard. I was, uh, we were living in Europe at the time, and it's basically um, that summer, my dad, and that's, that's the relevance, the connection with Star Trek, because it's still, it's part of our, of our thing. You know, we, we shared these things together, and I experienced them through him. Um, took me that summer to see my first two movies in the theater that I remember as far as I can remember. Those are the only first two movies that I have conscious and clear memories of seeing in the theater. One was Moonraker. And then <laughs> the second one was the empire strikes back. And, um, I remember the entire time I was watching the movie empire it's it's hard to describe. I mean, it I felt I felt this weird symbiosis where it felt like, based on what I was seeing, I was projecting what I what I was wishing or dreaming or hoping would happen in the next image and the next scene, and it would happen. You know, I was like, oh man, it would be so awesome if they if they had laser swords and boom, there's a lightsaber. It would be so awesome if we went into space and then we were into space. And then, you know, and, and the whole movie, I kept thinking, wow, this is the first time I remember consciously thinking it's like, it's like, this is playing inside my head. This is exactly the things that I do with my toys at home and I'm seeing it. Somebody else is actually visualizing it 
uh, for me on, on screen. And then we um, we walk home uh, afterwards, and that's that's all that could play in in my in my mind was how is this possible? How how I've I've just seen something which corresponds exactly to stuff role playing stories that up until now I thought were locked in in my head and I was nine years old at the time and I basically never looked back and there's kind of milestone moments um, in my life that followed and we can go you know some of that some of those if you guys want to um, that kind of created this this web this thread that that led to all the way through Lucasfilm and then IL, ILM Lucas Animation and and then today um, which, which looking back, I feel so lucky and blessed that I, I've had this kind of pattern, you know, that, that has weaved through, through my life like that. So for you, Star Wars is the original Toy Story. You could say that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and it's funny because it's funny that you, that you mentioned, mentioned it like that. And you, you know, that, that gets me thinking toys too, because, okay. So there, I do have a memory of Star Wars, before Empire, and it's not related to New Hope. It's related to toys, uh, because my dad, on one of his business trips, had brought me back three action figures and a toy. There was an Obi Wan Kenobi, a Luke Skywalker, and an R two D two. I think he, I can't remember if he had gotten me three PO then or if I got it if I got three PO later, um, and the Land Speeder. Oh, and and wow. I remember playing with those things, and and I remember making my own stories up, and and it's funny because when I saw when I saw Empire, I was like, wait a minute, I I know those guys, <laughs> I I've played with those guys, and and I already loved them, but I totally made up my own world and my own stories with who they were and what they did, and I remember actually, the following day. Um, bugging my mom because I went to my bedroom and I couldn't find those toys. And I was like, Oh my God, I have to find those toys. I have to find those toys. It's the most important thing in the world right now. <laughs> and, and, you know, my mom was like, what, what, what? And, and I got her, you know, to help me look, find them. And, and, um, of course, after that started another long love story, which was, um, my toy collecting, which is still going on today. Hey, yeah, Hey, my, Hey, uh, my, it's not toy my collecting. At work. Um, it, my they're, office they're is collectibles. Yep. <laughs> I, you know, uh, Nick, th- this is John. I, I just wanted to say I, I I love you for mentioning the land speeder because that land speeder, you just triggered a memory in, in my own head. That land speeder toy was like my security blanket as a kid. I didn't go anywhere without it until Empire came out and then it was always my wampa. But, man, that, that, uh, that land speeder toy, I still have it. Um, actually I have it arranged to hang on my wall with the original Luke and 3PO and that is, well, you know, it's funny. It's funny. You should say that John, because so, like I said, if you, if you were, if you talked to any of my coworkers, whether it was, um, when we were, um, at the ranch cutting Clone Wars or, or at ILM, they'll, as, as soon as you mention Nick's office, they'll, they'll probably crack up, um, (laughs) and talk about how it's, you know, basically referred to as the toy museum. Um, so there, there's literally in my room toys that span from from when I was like some of the oldest toys I remember having. There's there's a Smurf, which is one of the oldest toys that I remember my mom and dad giving me, um, and and up until I must admit it, up until the last few weeks ago, some <laughs> of the some of the newest ones I've I've bought. And um, 
I do have an area where I have a few um, precious Star Wars items. Um, and right there in the middle, there's the Landspeeder and Obi-Wan and Luke and 3PO and R2-D2. Oh, and um, and that that's that's one of my most precious toys. I have that, and it's funny because you you mentioned the Wampa for Empire. Um, the the Landspeeder and these guys remained like my 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 originals. But then um, my second most special toy from Star Wars was um, that winter after the movie came out. We were coming home uh, for Christmas, and uh, I remember we stopped in Geneva on our way because my dad had a, a friend, a childhood friend who lived there. And uh, um, we stayed with him for a few days. Um, and while we were over there, we one one night, these memories that are burning in my head, I w- we were walking through the streets of Geneva. It was kind of snowing. Uh, it was a total like Tim Burton, <laughs> Tim Burton memory as it's etched <laughs> in my mind. And we, we walked by this um, toy store and, in the window, it's like a Christmas story thing. There was um, a box for one of the first Empire figures that I saw, which was uh, the Tauntaun with Han Solo. Yeah, it's a Tauntaun nice. that had the belly that you could open. Uh-huh. Uh, and and so I was like, oh my god, this is the coolest thing! And the the store was closed, of course. Uh, it, was, it was in the evening. I was completely just glued to the window. Um, and then we went on about our, our, our business that evening, whatever. And then we went back to our place. And then the following morning came to find out that, like, my dad basically woke up early that day and went to the store and got it for me as a Christmas present and gave it to me as an early early Christmas present. Um, and so basically when I woke up, it was there. It was waiting for me. And, and so on on my on that same desk in my office are, is the the Landspeeder and the the guys, you know, um, the droids, Luke and Obi Wan, and then right next to it is the Tauntaun with Han Solo, which I still have as well. That is awesome. That is yeah. that is fantastic. And to know that it's sitting there in the office of somebody, you know, working on the like that that's just that's so cool. I, I guarantee you that that uh, Matt, I think you can confirm like that warms a fan's heart to know that. Uh, my office isn't the only one that has all of the toys in it. That that we're a brotherhood. We are, because right now I'm surrounded by all of my toys because I work from home and my desk is is littered with toys from Star Trek to DC to Marvel to you know uh, it's just incredible. So yep, uh, <laughs> I have a Star Trek area in my office. I have. I have a bunch of Marvel guys. I have a couple of Superman characters, and and you know, and I and I can't take all the credit. There's um, when I was when I was at the ranch, I was one of the I was one of the one of the older guys, quote unquote, because it was a it was a pretty young crew uh, overall. But uh, um, so I I definitely had the most I think um, collectibles just just by sheer fact that I had been there longer. <laughs> but um, when although Dave. Dave, of course, had like a huge collection, and not only that, but had like really amazing, amazing toys. Um, but uh, uh, at ILM, there's there's a bunch there's a bunch of us, um, and, and there's and I'm not I'm not the only the only old fart there. There's a bunch of uh, there's a bunch <laughs> of guys who've been there a while. Uh, ILM tends to be a place where you stay. There's a big legacy thing. It's not just a kind of a revolving door kind of company and and uh um there's there's a lot of people you can walk around in fact it's a pretty common thing when people uh bring 
guests, um, friends and family who haven't been there many times, you kind of take take a tour of the areas where you're allowed to go off the beaten path, and, and you just, it's it's a funny thing to see, like, the number of uh, cubicles or offices where there's, like, toys, models, all kinds of stuff, posters, you name it. Um, wow. There's actually a funny funny story um, that we can, we can get to now or later if you guys want, um, related to uh, toys and George. And, and, you know, like when I say we're all fans and two-degree collectors, uh, we can um, – it goes all the way to the source, so so. Oh, please! I can tell you guys about that as well. Yeah, please. Yeah, well, while we're at it, um, bring us that story, and then kind of just work in um, how you started working at ILM and and how you got to the Clone Wars and becoming an editor there. Sure. Um, okay, so so just to cover that that uh, that little toy detour story um, briefly, uh, when I was on the Clone Wars. Um, like I said, I've, I've, I've been lugging this stuff around the whole time I've been working with the company. So by then, um, this was in 2008, I want to say. Uh, I'd been on the show for a couple of years on the Clone Wars. Um, so I already had a, 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 quite a number of things in my office there at the ranch. And in fact, I'd gone to a place where I was starting to run out of room. And, and uh, some of it was kind of on the floor, and I was trying to display it as nicely as possible, but it was on the floor. So in comes George one morning for one of our edit sessions. Now, I, I should say first that there's a reason. Everything, again, is connected. There's a reason why George, George is an excellent editor. Um, he has a great sense of pacing, um, and that's connected to the fact that he also has an amazing eye, um, he visually has a, has a sense of balance, which is why he can he can see the balance in a shot and the way it's composed um, from one shot to another. The same thing translates into his life. That's another. That's also a reason why he loves architecture, interior design. Um, he's very very visual, and so and he loves things to be beautifully arranged. So he walks into my office one day, uh, and before we uh, before we would start the cut he would oftentimes kind of take a look around um to, to to check out the collection because he knew that i, I kept getting more stuff um <laughs> either replacing old things with other old things but just to keep it fresh or or adding new toys that i bought so he'd kind of look to see what was new and so he's, he's taking a look around asking me a couple of questions and then he, and then he notices the, the things that were on the floor and, and he's like you know you should really have a uh, set of shelves for that and I look at him and I said well George you know there's someone who can make it happen <laughs> and, uh, and 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 George says yeah I guess I could and you know and, we, and then we go on and I'm thinking okay well you know, we, that's it, it was, it was, we joked we joked about that and we go we go on a uh, with our business now this was pretty close to the I think the end of the year either Thanksgiving or or Christmas I think Christmas um, and I was going on vacation so a week or so later I'm going away and it was specifically a couple of days before the holiday started so I had um, one of our um, associate editors filling in for me covering so I'm checking I think I was at the airport actually um, and I'm checking with him making sure that everything that he's got that all the bases are covered blah 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 that we're good to go and he's like yep 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 um, and then he goes oh by the way there was a delivery for you this morning. And I said, a delivery? And he's like, yeah, it looks like it looks like a certain George Lucas had a set of shelves delivered in your office. 
<laughs> and so, awesome. and he starts to laugh, and I was like, "No, you're kidding me." He's like, "No, nope, I'm not kidding you." And so he said, "So, so Dave and I are basically, you know, since since you're so important that George is having sh- shells delivered <laughs> specifically for your toys, we're taking it upon ourselves to basically rearrange your whole collection and decide where they're going to go on the show." <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, I can I can imagine the conflict inside. Of oh wow these shelves are great wait you're gonna touch my stuff exactly I mean, that, yeah yeah that's exactly and I what, say, I could, happy holidays <laughs> bye and I could I could totally see Dave going I can't wait till he gets back <laughs> oh yeah he did Dave did that he he loved to mess with my toys he he did that like the throughout basically the entire production he would always. Uh, not necessarily rearrange all of them because he didn't have time and, and I, had, I had plenty, um, but he would make it a point. He knew exactly which ones I didn't want him to touch. And so he'd make a point. That's how sometimes I, I knew that Dave had been in my office if, if I wasn't there when he came in, is I'd come in and I'd find something that was clearly not meant to be touched and that was put completely wrong, you know, upside down or something like that. And he was always, obviously being a collector himself, he was always very careful not to break it. Um, or sometimes he would, we would be editing and he'd be sitting behind me and then he'd make, and, and I could, you know, he'd take a toy, a precious one, you know, on, on, on purpose and play around with it to make me nervous. And then I would hear him like, he'd make a noise and be like, oops. <laughs> I broke it. <laughs> um, but uh, but so Gosh. yeah to to um come back to sort of the the past um yeah there's there's a couple of uh there's a couple of early uh milestone moments kind of like the one I was describing for Empire um there was if you fast forward not too long ago uh, not too long after after Empire in in '83, I remember my parents had gotten um, their first um, our first VHS tape deck, and um, I had my friends and I, of course, were waiting the release of uh, Return of the Jedi on on video. We had all seen it multiple times um, that summer. And uh, I remember when it came out, it was a team effort between myself and a friend of mine. I had a tape deck, or my parents had a tape deck, and he didn't. Uh, but I didn't have any money to buy any, any VHS tapes, and he had, a, he had saved some money. So we made a deal. He, he went and bought Return of the Jedi on the condition that he could come over and watch it at my place, which I said yes to, on the condition that I could then um, l- borrow it from him on a regular basis. It was kind of like a deal upon a deal upon a deal. And yeah. I remember he and a, and a couple of other friends um, came over and we were just, um, it's funny. I, I have, it was great. It was great seeing the movie in theaters. Um, but this is actually the most, um, the biggest memory I have and, and the, the most important sort of uh, for Jedi was watching it with my friends on that summer or that fall on VHS and how I think is we, we had this sort of like mystery science where we were experienced where we were all talking and, and um, it was a very collective kind of communal uh, feeling of not just experiencing the movie and loving it, but actually experiencing it with other fans, other kids like me um, and, and all of us being equally excited by the same things. And we could, it's funny because I'd already seen the movie four or five times, I think, but, 
uh, it was like all of a sudden marveling again. It's like, oh my God, Luke has a new lightsaber and it's green, you know, because a lot of fans today, it won't, it won't, it'll never, it won't mean, it won't be as special to them because they've seen blue and green lightsabers, you know, for yeah. decades now. But at the time, it was the first time you saw a green lightsaber. Yeah. And it was a huge deal. It was like, oh my God, there's a, there's a green lightsaber. Um, and all these things. Uh, so that, that was a big, kind of like really propel me uh, onward with with my imagination with my love for star wars um then if you fast forward to uh 85 i think um is where it starts to take a little more of a mature shape i was i by then you know you have this whole section of time between 1980 and 85 where you have these movies that bombarded me <clears throat> you know you have empire and jedi and you have also the <clears throat> raiders of the lost ark temple of doom um, and a bunch of Steven Spielberg's movies from that same era, um, E.T., of course. And so I'm, I've definitely kind of developed an affinity for, for that. I'm, I'm becoming aware that there's that there's two filmmakers and that there's kind of a school of, of cinema that they represent. And I've read already by then articles with George talking about his dedication to story and story ideas and characters. And, you know, it's a very formative time, so it's all nebulous to me but i'm kind of already starting to feel like this guy is different from a lot of other filmmakers and he's very genuine and and there's not a lot of that hollywood kind of gloss to, to him of course it's not um articulated with these words but uh, it's it's very instinctive instinctively felt um and so in 85 i think it was uh i was just starting high school and uh my best buddy at the time who's also a big movie buff and ended up in working in industry later as well, turns me on. We're, we're at, the, at the bookstore one day, and he turns me on to Cinefax. He says, you know, you should really check it out. It's a great oh, yeah. publication. And this was the heyday for Cinefax, too, because um, this was when, you know, effects were practical. And and as much, I mean, you know, the digital effects industry is, is my world today, and I love it. But and in, in and out of itself, there's tons of story to talk about. But when you read about it, it's 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 one thing to read about about the way they made movies back then, and it's another to read about the way that they develop algorithms and programs and fix um, script yeah. issues yeah. in coding today. Not that it's any less challenging or any less interesting when you sh- when I share stories with with artists, you know, coworkers, supervisors, and so on. But um, or maybe it's also because I was younger, but reading about it, there was definitely a poetry and a magic to to what these guys had to invent. And I remember buying, you know, he showed me the issue that was out um, at the time, which was on Temple of Doom, and, and I bought it on the spot. And again, it's kind of like coming home from watching Empire. I remember actually started to like reading it, um, I think, in the subway, and then couldn't stop. And I was literally reading it while I was walking home. And, and, um, and I remember had, there's this, another one of those big moments like that where I was reading the the, the part where Dennis Murin was talking about coming to shoot the um, the mine chase uh, the mine cart yeah. chase and, and how they, they encountered the, an issue where they they couldn't fit any of their cameras in, in the miniature set in the tunnels they were way too big and how they had to um improvise and they basically went to the store bought a regular um still camera at the time and had to figure out a way to retrofit it to be able to shoot 35 millimeter film um and and the idea just blew my mind that somehow these guys 
for the sake of shooting this scene with miniatures for this movie, developed a whole new camera, um, something that they basically made a pocket size camera that could shoot 35 millimeter film, which those things were massive at the time. And by the time I got home, I thought, man, I, this is, I want to work with these guys. I want to, I want to make these movies. I, this is kind of what my calling is, I think. Um, so, um, go through high school and I was kind of, then I started to have a direction. Um, in college, I took film classes I went through a first master's and, and got pretty good training in film theory, lots of lots of film history, a very academic, excellent background, but not a lot of practical training. I kind of knew that I needed that um, to be able to make a living. Decided to look at schools um, and um, eventually um, settled on the Academy of Art uh, College in San Francisco. Initially wanted to, N- to go to NYU, but thought it was, I couldn't, I couldn't, get the loans and couldn't ask for my parents to pay the, the, the tuition that it cost. And, and again, it's one of those things where like fate ultimately, cause I, at the time I totally tuned out of the fact that Lucasfilm was based in the Bay area. So my decision to come to San Francisco and to go to the Academy of art wasn't motivated by that. Um, I knew San Francisco loved the city and the area. The school was good, good enough for what I wanted to get and, and was affordable. So it was these decisions that motivated it. And I came out here and Fell in love with editing. I was a screenwriting major. Uh, fell in love with editing because I saw in it right away a, a way to tell stories that was close to writing, but with images and sounds instead of with a pen and a piece of paper. Mm. Um, and so, and and there were work opportunities almost right away um, if if someone was willing, which I was, to work hard enough and to put themselves out there. It was right around. I was lucky in that sense. It was right around the the, the hinge moment where. Uh, the industry was transitioning from traditional linear um, editing on on chems. You know, those are all old film tables, mm-hmm. reel to reel, basically you know, the equivalent of that with with print, with film print, and going to to nonlinear digital editing, which is something that yet another thing George needs to to get credit for because he's the one who, back in the 80s, started to push for nonlinear editing. He had this vision for the fact that you could do so much more if you weren't bound to literally snipping print with scissors and it's in this very linear way where you cut it, you cut it, cut it piece to piece. And to a degree, you're kind of stuck with what you've done once you've done it because because the more you start to mess with it, um, the more you, you mess with your film. My school had a few systems, um, digital systems, which is why I picked it. And because it was just at the, at the time the industry was was changing over, if you were willing to spend the time to learn it, your skills were in demand because a lot of the older editors didn't know nonlinear editing. Sometimes were unable or unwilling to learn it. They, some of them still thought that it would never really catch on. Hmm. Um, so I jumped on that right away. Uh, totally loved the idea of what you could do again, kind of craft a story and started to do freelance jobs. And then graduation was slowly approaching and, and uh, starting to kind of have the sort of jitters of the real world about hmm. to hit me. And, I, and one of my professors who had done freelance for um, on the side mentioned, he said, well, you know, there's an internship um, program that we have with Lucasfilm. And like, again, it was kind of like, oh my God, it's fate. This is why, this is why I came to San Francisco. I, I, what was I thinking? Of course, that that's what I'm meant to do. 
And I had this moment where I was like, yes, it's exactly, it's going to happen. And, and he, t- he tried to, he was very, he was like, whoa, 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 but before you get, you know, too excited, there's a lot of applicants because it's Lucasfilm and they, they take very few candidates. So, and I, I was just like so confident. Uh, I was like, nope, that's, I know this is why I'm here. So I applied, sent in all my info, and then um, several weeks went by, uh, which became a couple of months. Didn't hear back, and I was like, man, this I thought for sure. Um, I thought for sure, and and then you know graduation was was there, and uh, and still nothing. Uh, the time I was I was dating someone who lived in New York, and um, and you know I had always wanted to to live in New York at some point. So I said, well, you know, whatever. I guess I guess I was wrong, um, and maybe I'll just go take my chances in New York. So I um, left literally left everything i was going to get my stuff later i told my roommate well you can enjoy the furniture and uh for another another <laughs> few weeks or a couple of months until i get settled i'll see if i can make it out there so i flew east stayed at my girlfriend's for a little bit um started looking for a job got a, a job as an assistant editor for in a in a, a post house which was you know not very glorious but i was happy i was like man i, I have a job uh, in new york I'm going to be assisting on, you know, Doritos chips commercials and stuff, but whatever. Um, and I was starting to look for an apartment. I was like, that's it. I'm an adult. I'm making a paycheck. I I'm going to have an apartment in New York. I have a job. Yeah. Um, about a month went by. And, and then um, one day I get this phone call. Hi, it's such and such. I'm a recruiting uh, coordinator at Industrial Light and Magic, and I see here that you have applied uh, for an internship a while ago, and we've gone through a selection process, and we're getting to the end of it. And uh, if you're still interested, we would like to talk to you about your application and see if you uh, maybe want to come for an interview. Wow. Now, <laughs> I, you know, I had this kind of freak out moment it was this was on a message i got like i, I came home from from work and and that was the, the message on, on my girlfriend's answering machine and uh so i had this kind of mini freak out moment because i was like oh man um all of a sudden this stuff these sort of like these big it, it's it's like a movie these things were were kind of taking these very symbolic um shapes in my life where i was like all right so so on the on the one hand I have now ILM calling me, uh, not even to offer me an internship, but to offer me the chance to interview for the internship. Now, I guess it's the last stage in that selection process, sure. um, which if I if I was to get, um, is not a paid internship. So that would be that would be another another five months without a salary, going back to to um, to California. Leaving, leaving the life that I'm starting and all the security that I'm starting to build here, yeah. Um, but to chase a dream, and on the other end um, is is the life that I've actually started to build as an adult, the responsible life. You know, I have a job, I have a girlfriend. I'm, you know, I'm about to uh, get my own apartment, yeah. and so I did what um, what every uh, every young guy I think faced with that should do. I called my dad, and and I called him really thinking. Okay, this this is this is the right thing to do because my dad is going to be the one. He's going to be the voice of reason. He's going to talk me out of it, um, sure. and so th- I'll know that I'm doing the right thing by by turning these guys down or or not even returning their call. 
So I called him and I said exactly what I just told you. I said, Dad, this is what's in the balance. On the one hand, I have this. I have the dream and pretty much nothing else. And on the other hand, that the thing that I've always wanted, always dreamed about, but but there's no there's no reality other than what I I see in it. And then on the other hand, there's everything. In the, it's not very glitzy, but this whole reality that's there that I have that I can already touch and yeah. and, and enjoy and live every day. And then there was this long silence, and my dad goes, "Well, you've already told me what you want to do. Now, all you have to do is just do it." And and it just completely me, really blindsided me. It took me, you know, it was a sure. major curveball because I did not expect him, of all people, to have that reaction. And so then, then it kind of, I was like, okay, well, I thought if if my father, uh, who's always been the voice of, of responsibility um, tells me that, that I really have no choice. Um, so I called my roommate. I said, do you still have my stuff? And he said, yeah, it's still there. And I said, okay, well, don't touch anything. I'm coming back. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, you know, just a few days later I was, I was back and um, went to the interview and worked out. They offered me the position, the internship uh, a week or so later. And then I, I did my I did my damnedest to to work my butt off um, to to really really let people know that um, not only could I work there uh, was competent enough but that I really really wanted it uh, I was I was living in the city at the time and and ILM was in Marin County which is about half hour 25 minutes north of uh, San Francisco I didn't have a car so I. I'd uh, commute by bus. Um, I had to get up around 4.30 or 5 every morning so that I could get there because I wanted to make sure that I could get there wow. before anybody else. So I would try to get there by 7 or 7.15 as, as wow. the latest and, <laughs> and uh, you know, did, like, intern stuff. I'd, like, get all the offices open and get everything, you know, an editorial cleaned up and, and get everything going and then would work as hard as I could and make sure that I was the last one to leave. Um, every night, uh, no, no, no sooner than like seven or eight p.m. Uh, sometimes, if one of the guys worked worked late, they'd give me a lift to San Francisco. Otherwise, I'd have to catch the bus back. And then um, came to the end of the internship. Again, it was kind of like, well, we'll see what happens. And and everyone was telling me, okay, so now you have to you have to look for a real job now. Now you have to take that experience. And 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 I and at that point. And now I was like, okay, you know, this is kind of, I, I have to have faith. So I said, no, you know, this is, this is what I've committed everything to this. This is who I am, what I want. I'm going to have faith that this is where I'm meant to be. And everybody was telling me, you're crazy. You can't wait too long because, you know, after that, your experience won't be so, so, so recent anymore. And, and you're going to start having difficulty finding work again, blah, blah, blah. And so I waited, um, it took about, I think, uh, about two months, uh, and I was really I was getting to the end. I was on fumes. I was I was on sure. you know, ramen noodles and and uh, <laughs> and, uh, and donuts. And then again, I got the call. Um, this time, I you know I, I waited for it, and uh, they called me. They you know I, I had made good relationships already with the people. They they knew that that I wanted to be back, and and I'd made a good enough impression. And and they they called me and said, okay, well, now we have a real job if you want it. And uh, I, I tried to give it 10 seconds to give the, the impression <laughs> that I was going to, you know, not be too eager. And I was like, yeah, you got to play cool. Uh -huh. 
Yeah, maybe so. Um, maybe I'll get back to you. I, I mean, know. I have other offers, but okay. Exactly. So, um, and then that was that was one of the the happiest days of my young professional life back then. They the day that I started um, and I got my badge, um, my original island badge, which I still have um, in a box, <laughs> and and uh, my first paycheck, which I sent to my dad, and I told him, well, that's for for having put up with me and having guided me and and, and got me to you know, the first, the first 23 years or, or so of my life uh, to this point, I, I think this one, I definitely owe you. And I could probably give you a couple more thousand checks like that. But, <laughs> um, and he actually kept that first paycheck and framed it. So he, he never cashed it himself. That's, but, um, that's amazing. That's amazing. You know, Nick, I, I, I just have to say, you know what I love most about hearing your story is I, I really think, uh, especially with the the cycle of, you know, tw- not just 24-7, there's, it's basically a micro-news cycle at this point where people get all worked up about everything, every little thing that comes out, is hearing your story is such a reminder of the dedication and the humanity at every person that is behind these things that we love these things that we enjoy watching. And, uh, you know, I, I I know that this might sound like it's overstating it, but it's one of those things It really adds a texture that makes the enjoyment of these things amplified. To know that somebody as dedicated as you, you know, like you, you really put in the time. You're there because you wanted it so bad. Like, it, it's almost like a Rocky story where it's like, you know, you... You didn't give up. You you weren't you weren't sitting there and all cre- you know as much credit as possible to your dad too for not counseling you to take the safe path, but just to say you know what go for it. And it's like you know like you, you can almost hear that 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 inspirational music right there. And it's it's wonderful because this was your path. This was the path you were meant to be on and, and how wonderful it is that you are there and that you're, you're working there. That that's, that's just great. Oh, I absolutely, absolutely believe you like, you know, and, and completely agree with you. And, and, you know, thank you for saying that there's, there's no doubt in my mind, you know, I've, I've made my share of uh, mistakes in my life like everyone, but I have absolutely no regret because I know for a fact that the path I followed was the one I was meant to um, the whole way, mistakes included. And yeah, there's definitely been other moments, you know, there, there, um, during my internship, um, there was another kind of, another one of these moments that, that I, re- I remember now as these sort of milestone threads that, that have, that have kept me and guided me through. Um, and it was actually the first time I, the first time I, well, I didn't technically meet George at that point. Um, but the first time I came close to him and it was, it's a funny, it's a, it's a very little story. It doesn't have anything. It's not important out of itself, which is what makes it great and, and completely unforgettable for me. It was um, a, a very early morning, as I said. You know, I, I was always making a point to be there as early as I could um, during my internship. And and at the time, we were working on the on the uh, special editions of uh, the original trilogy. And and so George had gotten in the habit of coming every Tuesdays and every Thursdays for reviews uh, with our crew, which he actually kept that through the prequels. And so, and George is a very early riser, as I found out later, um, working with him. And uh, I, 
you know, I, I went, I came, came to work around seven, did all my stuff, turned everything on, um, got the tape decks going. So at the time we were still working with tape decks and, um, checked the patch, the patches. And then, you know, what I would do, my routine was, you know, by 7.45, close to 8, I was usually done. And there was still no one there because people didn't start rolling in until like about an hour later, closer to 9. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would I would relax and take, take a, a 15, 20 minutes to walk around. There's so much history in the old ILM campus. And just enjoy soaking in the morning, the smells, just being there. And um, we had a, a little hut. That was in between two of our of our main buildings called Java the Hut, um, hmm. which uh, um, I would go grab my coffee at. And yeah. so, so I'm I'm walking out. And the, those two main buildings were called um, C Building and D Building. I was walking out of C Building, which is which is the editorial building, which is actually it, it, that building has a huge history. It goes back to before ILM moved in in there. Um, it was the building where um, George did a lot of the cutting on on Empire. Um, huh. So it, it was, that's why it had become the editorial building. So I was walking out of C building and then out of D, I see this other lone figure coming out and heading towards Java the Hut. And as I'm getting closer, I'm like, it's George, it's George Lucas. <laughs> and, uh, um, and he was, you know, he would, he'd come in with his paper, which he still did, um, later when we were working on the Clone Wars, he'd come in. Um, if we had a, our session started at, at nine you know right at the start of the day george would be there an hour an hour and a half earlier and he'd just l- like to sit in one of our living rooms and then basically read read the paper so he, he's come around with his paper under his arm and he gets he gets in line in front of me at java and orders his coffee and that was really it it was just he was just right next to me ordered wow. his coffee and i ordered my coffee but you know i was this 22 23 year old guy who was just doing this internship and, and I didn't have like my doubts, but I was like, man, what am I doing? Like what, what is going to come out of me, you know, doing this like back and forth, getting there this early, staying there late and, and kind of doing all the, all the dirty work that people don't want to do, like taking everything. Like, is this really, you know, what, what I, what I'm choosing? Like what? Mm-hmm. And, and then all of a sudden, just with that, I was like, yep, this is, this is why I'm here. Right. This is why I'm doing this because, there's the guy that inspired my childhood. He's right there in front of me. And it wasn't, it wasn't like a starstruck thing of like, Oh, he's close to me. Proximity It was more like, there's the guy who, who was inspired me. And this is, this is the path I'm on. Like, this is the path I'm on to, to work. This is, goes back to that same afternoon I was talking about when I was reading the Cinefix. I want to get to a place where I can work on these movies, learn the craft, um, and be these, be, just collaborate with with these people and then all of a sudden i'm like yeah i'm 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 arriving at at the place where i've always said that i wanted to arrive to so yes you just keep keep on going until you've arrived there's a lot of people who have stories like that i'm not the only one um with the company um from from people like dave um he has amazing stories to the past that led him to meet george to work with lucasfilm and to be where he's at now, and a ton of other people. I was mentioning to Matthew the other day, we have a, a wonderful, amazing guy, one, one of the most legendary, to me, persons at ILM who I'd love to to, to mention. Um, his name is Paul Houston. And Paul was um, uh, an optical matte painter back in the mm-hmm. days before before digital, when, when matte, painters, matte paintings would be done on glass. Right, and um, he is the first 
and still to date the only employee who last year celebrated his 41st anniversary with the company. Wow. Um, he's been there since day one awesome. continuously. There's a couple of others who are there now and who were there at the beginning, but who left at times. Paul is the only one who was there before the company even moved to Northern California when it was the first outfit, the original sevens, as we call them, you know, who were in Van Nuys. Paul was there and, and he's still and he's still there. And the guy is not not only, you know, you can look him up if you if you Google Paul Houston, you'll see the work he's done, the movies he's worked on, the, the paintings he's done on glass back then and digitally now. He's not only an amazing artist, he is the nicest guy ever, the most humble person ever, super low key. And this company really is is founded on the roots of people like that. So there's a lot of history um, and legacy at Lucasfilm. That's wonderful. Sure. That is absolutely wonderful. And uh, since you did mention, you know, you had that moment where you were, you know, uh, next to George, uh, you know, at, at Java the Hut and, and Dave's own path to get there. Um, when you were describing, you know, what you were working on while you were in school uh, and your mm-hmm. sort of approach to editing, your editing sense, it reads sort of as similar to uh, the the sense that that George had um, when he approached the films. Now, working with them, do you feel that that was an eight? Am I misreading it? Like, were, were did you come in and have a totally different sense, and they steered you in a completely different direction, or was it a, a natural fit to work there because you had sort of a, a you know an ingrained uh, sense of what to do? And if you had that ingrained sense of, of what to do, do you feel that it was because you had you had grown up watching these movies? Do you feel that they had sort of served as your first template for how to work in this environment? That's an excellent question, and you know, um, the the, sh- the super short um, version of the answer is it's a little bit of both. It was a little bit of both for me. Um, I think what I had with me, both in terms of personal interests, passion, and experience up until then, definitely got me to that point um, and helped me, you know, get into that sort of inner inner sanctum, that that inner world. Um, working with Dave and George, and I used it. Um, so it's not like it was a complete sort of oh now that that's all useless or you know do a 180. At the same time, there was definitely a blank slate element mm-hmm. where once once I took the leap into that next step and into that world, I felt like it was blank slate, and it, it was almost like. Uh, going to school again and not not unlearning but just like oh just kind of getting to a step where where I felt like or I realized at that point that what I had learned up until then those 10 years of of experience I had because by the time I started working on the Clone Wars I had about 10 years of experience and it was almost like realizing within the first year or two working on the Clone Wars that the experience that I had that I thought I had was actually just um, basically breaking the code. It's, it was like learning learning the structure of the language. What I learned in 10 years was just what I needed so that I could then understand what these guys were talking about and so that I could then 
go to not go to real school because it is a linear process. So I I wouldn't have been able to do one without the other, but so that I could right. then escalate and then completely get immersed into into the real language, not just the structure of it. And you know, so I, it was in 2006. I was I was coming up on my 10th anniversary. I'd worked on two of the prequels, uh, and you know, my passion for Star Wars, our our industry in, in movies in general, but definitely Star Wars was known to a lot of my friends and coworkers. And, and then one of my buddies at some point, and we, he and I had talked about um, Gandhi Tartakovsky's Clone Wars. And, and, oh yeah. And the things that I loved about it, the things that I thought could be done differently, and so on and so forth. And but more sort of big picture how awesome I thought the idea in general in general that that had gotten me thinking about how awesome the idea of Star Wars in the animated world was and how how when you stop to think about it it makes perfect sense mm-hmm. and then and then one day he tells me you know I I was talking to somebody else at work or I see some for some sort of internal channel I forget how he said I I I hear that George is actually going to put together an outfit and he's going to do, he wants to do his own, he wants to do something with Star Wars that's animated. And then it was kind of like, you know, the internship thing. It was kind of like the Temple of Doom Cinefix. I I had this moment where I was like, all of a sudden, everything just became sharp. And I was like, okay, this is why I'm here right now. This is, this is my next step. So I... Uh, contacted a friend of mine in recruiting who I found out had gone from ILM to work for Lucas Animation and was going to be their, their head of recruitment and said, okay, if anything comes up, you know me, you know that I, I, it's not, I'm, not a, I'm not after the title, so I, I'll do whatever it takes. If anything comes up that you think that these guys need me for, let me know because I, I want to do it. And then something came up. Um, she gave me a call. I went up for a first interview um, it was very early on. I mean, Dave by then had already been working with George for, for I think, eight, nine months, hmm. um, some of it in secret. But he had been like pretty much employee one, um, and that was it for, for most of it. At that point was when we, we were just starting to come together as a crew. When I started, I think there were around, I want to say, 25 people um, mm-hmm. working. On, that was the whole crew, which eventually when we were at capacity, we grew to be um, just on the Clone Wars, I think 100, 140 or something like that. Wow. Um, the roles were still well they the roles were basically being defined everything was kind of like we were figuring out what needed to be done day by day so so mm-hmm. you couldn't tell up front well this is what you'll do because that could change a new role might might emerge out of a meeting or out of out of necessity you realize oh crap we need somebody to do this i basically to the extent that they could they had kind of anticipated what what a role might be that i could do mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was, it, it, it tied into the experience that I'd had on working to effects. I was going to basically monitor cuts, um, as they came along, but very quickly, um, when I passed that first interview with the producer at the time of the show, um, then, then, um, I got to interview with Dave and already by then I could tell, and he, he was, he was telling me about the way he was cutting with the senior editor by the time, the only editor, Jason Tucker. Mm-hmm. who was also a wonderful mentor to me later and things were growing and, and Davis told me, you know, if you, if, if I bring you on board, you're probably, they haven't told you that because it's really not yet written in, but you're probably going to have to work with George. So I need to know that you can handle that. Um, huh. And it'll be working with me and, and that, that you already know, but you'll have to cut with George. And, and so, and I didn't hesitate. I said, 
definitely. I had I had no idea yeah. how I was, I was going to get to that level, but I was like, I you know, there's no doubt in my mind. I passed that interview um, with Dave, and then I got a call back. Um, Jason, the, the editor, wanted to mm-hmm. wanted to uh, have lunch with me, and we chatted. And I think that was kind of like the the last step. After that, I got the offer, and uh, and yeah, very quickly these guys gave me even at the stage when I hadn't done anything to prove myself to them by necessity. And because that's kind of the way the clone wars mm-hmm. worked. If, if, if people thought you could, you could do it once you were in, they would just trust you and say, well, now, now it's, it's the trust we have in you is yours to lose. We, you know, you, you start with it and then you lose it. It's not the other way around. You don't have to earn it. Um, we're, we're going to take it out, take it away. If you prove that you you can't handle it. I basically tried to soak in as much as I could from, mm-hmm. from Jason. Um, I was the associate editor back then. So, so there was a, a great step, like stepping stone for me, um, because I was taking a lot of responsibilities with the cut, but I didn't have first responsibility. The way the system worked is Jason would sit down with Dave and they would come up with, uh, what we call the story reel, which is basically the cut for the episodes at a very rough stage where everything is black and white and, and sort of like 3D blocks, because it's it's easier to make changes at that stage if we need to, based on rewrites, based on things that George wanted to add or, or subtract. Sure. Um, and so they would they would basically Jason and Dave would cut the episodes, lock them, then cut them again with George, relock them, sort of like a George lock, and then it would come to me. And then at that point. Um, once that stage had been locked, animation would start to come in, the full animation, then the renders, and it was my job to basically cut everything in, conform it, make sure that, that it was conformed to what they wanted when, when it was in this blockier stage. And then the idea was, the plan was, that once we had it polished, we would do another edit session, which I would drive with George. So it was a great opportunity to learn at a stage where I, w- I already had to take a lot of responsibility and ownership over the cut and, and drive, but still had the safety blanket of an experienced editor who had done his his magic working with Dave, um, who took the time when I asked to explain to me why they were cutting things a certain way, why mm-hmm. they couldn't do certain things, um, and then have to practice cutting with Dave and George gain get up to speed on that but still at a place where the cut was was already it was more about finessing and understanding that was a great experience for me to to understand how story logic works as an editor Mm -hmm. because then this is because everything was more final this is where george would take a look at the cut and then really say okay well we're still having a problem with pacing here because this scene is actually out of order and you know you're you're giving the story point in Act One, but really it's too soon. And if you if you move it to Act Three, you'll then it'll make a lot more sense. And so um, that really helped me understand all the all the elements, all the ingredients that I was going to need. Once you know, a couple of years into it, mm-hmm. um, Dave and Jason gave me the chance to say, okay, just said, you know, basically we're I want to be able to give you the chance to to do the same thing that I'm doing and to be an editor like me. So if you're interested. I want to foster you know your talent and and move you into the same role that I'm doing. So there'll be two of us, and we'll split the number of episodes in, in two, and cut them half half. Uh, by then, um, I really had that background that I brought with me, my passion and the experience that I'd gotten technically, 
in effects for 10 years and the two years of um, working, gaining speed with these guys, but also having a little bit of a fly on the wall where I could watch them. I could watch um, Jason cut. I could watch uh, uh, Dave think and George think. And the two of them um, were an amazing balance for me on sort of like the real school of, of filmmaking, you know, that I was going to every day with them because they're a great balance. Dave has an amazing ability to envision a scene, uh, to craft it, narrate it, and choreograph it in his mind, whether it's a major action scene, a lightsaber fight, uh, space battle, or whether it's a, an intimate character scene uh, with just two people, I've seen him do it. I've seen him talk it out. I've seen him map it out on, on a on a whiteboard. Uh, but he he wow. kind of does. He his mind can go into this mode, um, working almost like a stage director, where he he will kind of it's what we call stage play, and he will basically say, okay, well the these are the beats of the story. You know, if it's a scene between two characters in a room, so one is already in the room, they're sitting. The other one walks in. We know that they're, they're screen right of them. We know that what needs to happen in the scene is they're going to sit, they're going to talk about this subject. By the end, the one who was in the room is going to get up and leave. The other one stays by the window. And then from there, he starts to break it down and say, well, okay, so the one who, who walks in is going to deliver bad news. So they would talk like this, which would motivate the other one to do this. And then he kind of goes, he wow. takes he takes himself and you through the scene step by step. And by doing that, he starts to motivate every beat more and more and more, uh, which gets the craft the best performance that he's going to need to get um, out of an animator, out of a voice actor um, ahead of time. And then um, it also motivates the best camera moves that we're going to mm -hmm. best shots that we're going to to get for each each moment in the scene which in the last stage will motivate the edit that's an amazing talent he has on the front end george has a completely intuitive amazing way of seeing images shots mm -hmm. moments entire scenes if you if you put one in front of him um and then it's like a language. It's like it's like as if you you took a, a book and basically threw the words in the jumble and then opened the book and showed it to George. And George has the ability to say he looks at the letters of the words and says, "Oh, this this will make a, a, a great sentence if you actually put this word here and that word here." Huh. Um, so one and they they both are talented in in the two areas. But what I retained the most was. Dave's ability to kind of see ahead and plan and map out scenes and then capture the best possible footage for George. And then George's natural gift and his, his amazing talent on, um, in, the, in, in the editing suite to, to look at these shots, these images, and then all of a sudden right. start to be able to arrange them, trim them, sometimes extended, reorder them to get the best possible, uh, clearest and most effective um, result out of the moment. Uh, there's there's an example that that I think really speaks to that point. Um, when we were cutting uh, one of the Malevolence episodes, which is the the one where Anakin, oh, yeah, and uh, and Ahsoka uh, do the uh, the the run on the on the Malevolence. Yes. 
and uh, um, with the, the Y wings, yeah. with the introduction of the Y wings, yeah, uh, which was a big deal. <laughs> you know, um, my friend, my friend Gary Shepke, who was the script coordinator and and uh, worked with the design group, uh, that was a big thing that he and Dave worked on. They they really, really, really wanted to get the Y wings right. Um, so, and then same thing for that whole scene. We wanted it was it's it's, a, it's another thing that that scene is a good example for it. It's a it's a really great example of our dedication as fans and professionals. We we wanted as as fans of Star Wars, we wanted to do to pay homage to New Hope and to the the Death Star trench run, um, and we also wanted to execute it right as well as we could as professionals and as filmmakers. So a lot of work went into you know the process that I've described you know with Dave thinking out the beats and and the best angle for each shot and, and how to build it up and have this amazing kind of crescendo, just like the, the Death Star Trench Run has. Mm-hmm. And we did. Um, and it was amazing. Except that every time we played it, there was something that felt off. It felt off. And we couldn't tell what, because we had worked it, reworked it, reworked it so much. Um, and, and we were like, I don't, we, we couldn't figure it out. And, and finally Dave, um, did what what he did when when we would hit sort of that wall. Um, he was very smart about. It. He would say, "Well, you know, this is why we have George. We should. This is why he comes in. Um, we should just let him come in and tell him this is what we've done, why we've done it, and then and then we should t- we should be honest and say, but we feel like not necessarily there's a problem, but there's something that's in spider sense is tingling. We don't know why, and and then we'll see what he says. So we did. Um, this was one of our longest um, edit sessions. Jason had a few that were longer. He actually had a few with George that went across several days. Uh, they had to come back and revisit. Wow. But um, this one was one of my longest. We started in the morning and we went until about one something in the morning. And we got to Act Three, which is when that sequence is. And and so Dave tells George, "Okay, so this is what you're going to see, and uh, this is what we were going for." But there's something we feel we haven't we haven't hit right, and I don't know what it is. So so check it out and, and let us know. So we played it. We played it for George two or three times. And now what he does when he gets into that mode, he'll just watch whatever it is, whether it's a sequence, a whole movie, or reel. Uh, he wants to watch it from from beginning to start without any interruption. He'll just you can see him. He's just paying very close attention. Um, and then when it's when it's over, he'll say, "Just go back, play it again." And we did. And then he was like, "Okay, right, one more time." And then, and then wow. he said, "Okay, well, first thing I can tell you, um, it's no big deal. Um, I know, I know what's wrong." And then he said, "The second thing is, I'm going to tell you right away. We're going to break it, but don't be afraid." As which is another thing he told us all the time: "Don't be afraid, because we'll put it back, <laughs> and when, once we do, it'll be even better than than it is now." And and he said, "Well, you know, okay, so the problem that you have." is you guys said you wanted to pay homage to the Death Star Trench Run, right? We're like, yeah, yeah. He said, well, it's great. And so you did. It, it looks great. The problem is you forgot pacing-wise that you're you're modeling your, your pacing after a sequence that takes place um, in an environment that's the size of a planet. And you're building wow. up shots with right. an environment that's the size of a spaceship. That's wow. you know, a completely different scale. And so the sense of timing is completely off because you're making your viewer feel like this is building up over a certain time and a certain distance when uh-huh. it wouldn't. 
if it was really happening the way that you have it set up, it would be over before it starts almost. Wow. So he said, you know, that we're, we're going to have to re-rig it so that we keep the elements what you're trying to go for, but we you have to keep in mind where visually and spatially you are and the fact that you can't then, there's a whole sense of tempo that wouldn't be the same right. because you just physically are not covering the same distance. That's the natural understanding that George has for, for pacing, for, for visual editing, where he got right away what the problem was. And it took us a couple of hours because it wasn't just that it was broken. The part of the work, and George was very, very dedicated to that, um, he knew that we were dedicated to preserve his vision as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, Dave always imbued that to everyone on the crew. We are here first and foremost to carry out George's vision. Um, it's it's his baby, his idea, and we're, we're extensions of him. So this is how whatever you do, you have to think of yourself. Um, but I think in turn, as the trust grew between the two of them, and George knew and believed and had faith in Dave to carry out his vision, he he also began he began to trust Dave and wanted to the best of his extent to to leave in the things that he knew were were Dave's things were his ideas his intent because he knew Dave was working towards his interests so it was it was a it was a mutual mutual thing for the two of them to work together like that and part of the work that went into fixing it that took us into the wee hours of the night was George trying to make it work, but not just make it work, but also trying to make it work, but preserving what he could of what he knew we were trying mm-hmm. to do. Um, and, you know, it, that it was completely worth it. But the, the best memory I have of that particular evening is it, it was early on in the show. And so at that point, there were a lot of people still in the, in the cutting room with us when we were, when we were doing these edit sessions. Um, the herd kind of thinned out uh, as we went on, you know, in, in years in the show. But um, it was always at least, even even later, at least five or six people. At that point, we had probably the double that uh, when we were cutting. As the hours wore on, they kind of dropped like flies, one by one by one by one. <laughs> and then we got to about half past midnight. And at that point, it was just me, Dave, and George. And and I have to say, probably some of it was fatigue also, but I, I started to just fly because I was like, oh, this is so cool. This is just like, I'm, the three of us are cutting and we're kind mm-hmm. of, and at that point we were, it's a dream come true because we were just having fun. We're tired, but we're just playing. We're like literally three boys playing with toys saying, okay, what would be cool now is this. What would be cool now is that. And that kind of completely makes makes up for the fatigue that you have or the pressure or, you know, what you're trying to achieve and the, the, the time or little time you have to achieve it in because then you're just like, it's the dream. It's it's what George gets to do every day, which is he just, something excites him, he thinks about it, he's like, oh, I want to try and do that. And boom, he does it. And it was one of those moments where we shared that with him. We were just making Star Wars. That That is fantastic. I, I mean, that... That is really cool, uh, and it's, you know, I think it speaks to what made the show so special, so successful. Is you could you could sense that sort of collaborative effort uh, in it, you know, that that everybody was working, everybody was just sort of in tune with each other. 
Um, and I, I will say, and I'm not just saying this because of the, you know, of what you sh- chose to share with us, but malevolence is one of those story arcs that I always go back to. That was the one where even after enjoying the movie, uh, like I was still skeptical about whether the show could work and malevolence sold me on the idea of this show working. Like it, 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 it was one of the, I remember I was over at my friend's house. Uh, it was, uh, Kristen and Carl and we would have homemade pizza. And it was, if I recall, it was a Friday night that clone wars aired on. And, uh, mm-hmm. I remember watching the malevolence arc with them over time and just saying, wow, what just, what just happened? So <laughs> like, it, it was just, it was a wonderful moment. And I, I you know, I, I think that there are several different arcs that you could point to, uh, throughout the series but being ground level, being like one of the painters that's right there up against the canvas, it can be hard to step back. But the moments where you're you're able to go back and rewatch it, what are the what are the favorite ones for you uh, through the years? Like the you know, aside from malevolence, where you you could even step back for a minute and say, nailed it, got that one exactly right. That that couldn't have turned out. Any be- like you, you don't see any chance for improvement after it's been released to the wild. Uh, you know, well, th- there's always room for improvement, um, and even and, and this is not false humility, like you, because I mean, it's, that's not me. I, uh, ultimately, I was, I definitely played, you know, a role and sometimes an important role, but like, you know, as perfect as it gets, it's it's Dave and George, you know, at, at the at the source of it. Um, but there's always room for improvement, and I think they, they would be the first two to say it, to say that, you know, especially George. I mean, that's what he loves to do. If you if you remove timeline from George's George's agenda, I mean, he he will he will just that that would be a dream come true to just make it better and then say, well, next week, let's make it a little better and then let's make it a little better. But hmm. um, there's definitely, you know, key moments or favorite moments I have. Um, there's I'll name a few because it's impossible to single it out. I think. There's one which I've mentioned to Matthew before, um, which was early on, um, which was uh, Ambush, uh, which was our episode 108. It was the the, mm. the, the eighth episode we, we produced, but it, I think if I remember correctly, it was the first regular episode that aired on TV. It was, yeah. There was a, a, a moment um, at the end of the show when Yoda, it's a, it's a small thing, but mm-hmm. Yoda speaks to the, to the clones in the cave and tells them a little yeah. bit about the force. Um, and it's a great thing because they're, they're great sets of characters to contrast that, you know, the clones, obviously they're soldiers, first of all, and, and they, because they're the product of science, they have a very kind of practical approach to what life is about. They, they were born and bred in, in, in test tubes and, and their purpose is to, to fight and that's it. There's not much. And and then Yoda, you know, comes as a counterpoint to that. And he's in that scene in particular. He is just basically like this this really majestic presence to 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 show them how anything can be special in life. And even if you if you're just like they consider themselves an object, a tool, there can be beauty and magic in that. And and you can find spirituality in that. I remember when when and I was still the associate editor at that point. Um. So so the the story reel had been cut by Jason and Dave and. And I was working on on tweaking the cut um, with for, for the final animation. And another thing that I did, which was great training for me again for sense of pacing, was uh, I would do music editing and sound effects editing. 
uh, because by the time we did for we went for our second and and final edit session with George when mm-hmm. the show was fully colored um, and animated, we tried to have it be as close to final as possible. Dave always said we have to basically w- when we showed to George at that point, it has to be our best foot forward as if we were ready to air it on TV the next day. And m- mind you, that's not just well on TV because. What George's mandate to Dave and us was, was when you guys are ready, you should think that this is good enough for it to be a Star Wars movie. His mandate was always every episode in your mind should be a Star Wars movie. And you should you should in your mind shoot for something that could hold up in a big screen uh, with big sound and sound and look as good as any of the Star Wars movies that I made. And nothing less than that, <laughs> no which pressure. is why before we would go into yeah, edit, I mean, we would actually you know. we would, we would screen these episodes with him uh, in in a large screening room with big sound and on a big screen, so he could see it as if it was a movie and as a way to say, well, there there you go, George. So we're Dave and I are talking about music choices for that scene, and I we're we keep coming back to the fact that it feels because of Yoda's point, because of what he steps in as a teacher and as old wiser spiritual Yoda. Um, not as not so much as the, the the Yoda who fought Dooku in, in Attack of the Clones, but more like the older Yoda who we're going to meet in and meet again in Empire Strikes Back later. Mm-hmm. We keep coming back to, well, it feels like we should use Yoda's theme there. Now this may not sound like a big deal, but it actually was because we were very very conscious. Um, of not using the original Star Wars movies, prequels or the trilogy, um, as a trope, as a, as an easy go-to to to get a, a reaction out of the fans. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an easy thing because th- those are such powerful moments, especially with music. You know, if you sure. both George and Dave always said you can put John in 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 anything, and then all of a sudden it becomes ten times more powerful. So we didn't want to rely on that. You know, uh, a little bit like what. Gene Roddenberry was very conscious of, of trying to do when he um, rebooted Star Trek with Next Gen, which was to not use TOS as much as possible as a crutch. Um, and and you can fault the first couple of seasons of Next Gen for, for quite a, a few things if you, if you choose to, but I think that he was 100% right about that. And, and as clunky as the show might have been, I don't think it would have become Next Generation had it tried to be another version of TOS or, or mirror it or echo it or use TOS right. a lot. Um, it would not have had the chance to really grow. And we, we were trying to do the same thing for Star Wars. We wanted the Clone Wars to be its own thing. And we wanted to tell the fan, if you're going to love this scene, this character, this moment, this piece of music, it's going to be on its own merit and not because we're using something which we know you already love. Um, and so we were, we were really like trying to, trying to talk ourselves out of it or see if there was a way that, that we were, basically falling victim to that and, and, and trying to prove the fault in our reasoning. And no matter how, how much we did, we came back to know it needs to be Yoda's theme. Yeah. And, and Dave said, okay, well, I'll talk to, you know, once, once when we, when we do the, the, the screening in the, in the theater, when we get to that scene, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to Jordan and we'll, we'll, we'll front it to him like that and we'll see what he says. And we did. And it was one of the first times, and that's, that's the favorite moment of mine because that was one of the first times we're still pretty early on in our production, maybe a year or so for me, um, Mm -hmm. a year and a half for Dave, where you could see the trust start to grow between those two guys. And, 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 um, Dave explained to him and George said, 
well, play it. And we did. And George was like, you're right. This this scene needs to have Yoda's theme. So go ahead and tell um, Kevin Kiner, who was our composer, that it's okay for him to use it. Wow. Um, and and that was a, that was a cool cool moment for me. There was that. Um, there was the uh, uh, the first our first episode with uh, uh, with Kit Fisto um, when he. Yes. Uh, All right. Yeah. Uh, I love Kit Fisto. Yeah. I, that, I always that, thought it was that, really. What was that? Has such a. I just I love that episode and and the look of it and the feel of it and everything about that episode works. Yeah, we're sort of having just that fanboy reaction because Lair that that is that is a stellar episode. Yeah, you know, Lair of Grievous. There was always something magical for us too. Like I I think it was one of the first episodes where we really tried. We started to like say, okay, this let's try to do something bigger. Not not bigger like more epic, but bigger like let's shoot for more. Let let's yeah. just. Let's not be afraid to say if we want fog and smoke, then we should we should try to to do to fog to, to have to have fog. Um, if we want to have a certain type of character, let's let's build an asset, a model for that character. Um, you know, and, and again, George was the first one to tell us, don't be afraid. You know, if 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 you can justify it, if it's if it should be in the story, do it. Um, it'll be painful. You'll have to figure out a way to do it in the same time constraints that you already have, but but do it. And so we we really tried um, and. Um, yeah, there was a lot of stuff that came together. I, there's something magical about the episode. It's it's creepy, but without it's not creepy, spooky. There's just something very ethereal. The fact that yeah. we see Gravis's lair is, I think, one of the best Star Wars villains' inner sanctums revealed moments. You know, yes. there's something really cool about his his lair, and and ultimately that all came together. It was actually, you know, you said. Um, what was kind of the, the the moment where you hit the perfect note? I don't know that we did because again, you could make anything better. But it was the first episode. We had a few eventually, but it was the first one um, that we we screened with George. Like I said, we would have these these, these screenings in in his um, theater with the sound and everything, uh, as if it was a theater experience before we we would go in the edit. And it was the first one we watched, which at the end of of um, George. The lights came back up, and George said, "Well, this one's perfect the way it is. There's nothing for me to to, to touch. Oh, so wow. we'll just we'll just air nice. it like that." Um, <laughs> so it was it was a big moment for us. We were we were very proud that day, and we we um, patted ourselves I a think, little bit on the back, and then we went right back at it and, and said, "Okay, well let's let's try to make the other one, the next one better." I think what's so cool is that you know listening to this, and what I think you were hinting at earlier, John is that this collaboration between Dave and George is that George finally found the person who understood Star Wars like he does and that he could really trust um, to make Star Wars um, and he could really collaborate with in a way that they weren't they weren't butting heads ever. It was just two guys who loved this and could really grow this. And I mean, you know, he... he Always, uh, you know, I heard Dave say many times uh, uh, that George told him, I'm, I'm teaching you to make Star Wars so you can make it when I'm gone. And I think he just found that one person he could truly pass on what it meant to make Star Wars like George made Star Wars. So when Dave makes Star Wars now, in some ways, I almost feel like it's it's George is still making Star Wars, too. I, I think you're you're absolutely right, um, 100%. And I, I think that would probably be one... I mean, I would I obviously can't and don't want to speak for him, but I think that would be one of the best compliments you could pay Dave. Um, 
it's something that he was always intent on on conveying um, to others, to George first. Uh, and I think part of that trust and that bond that, that developed between the two of them was the fact that Dave understands, understood and understands now Star Wars almost better than than anybody else I've known for sure. The fact that George knew that Dave understood it well enough to also know that he would never understood it more than George. And and I think that was that was the perfect combination for George to know, okay, this guy really George is someone who works like that. He, you have to he has a very clear vision. He has a very intuitive way of communicating it. Um, and if you and if you connect on the same wavelength, if you if you trust that intuitive type of expression of communication, you will get what he means. But you have to let go and be be. It, it is almost a force kind of thing. You have to be, to 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 work on that level. Um, not everybody has that that level of confidence um, mm-hmm. and faith. And and Dave had it. Dave had the faith to say, okay, well. He says this, I think he means this, so I'm going to act on it and create something and we'll show it to him and then we'll see. And that was that was that was enough. And but then and that's the second part of it, George knew that Dave was always able to pull himself back when needed and, and tell George, Hey, can you explain this to me? And and it's not it's it's not so much like what do you mean? It's more like when it comes back to the bigger picture of these characters and who they are and why they talk the way they they do. And and it's it's very easy for all of us, people who have worked on it, fans, um, to take ownership because those are the images we've lived with for four decades almost now, and we've heard mm-hmm. characters speak, um, and we we've lived and relived their stories. And so you expect certain things, but you have to remember it's completely normal and there's nothing wrong with that. But you have to remember that all these moments, all these characters, all these words, all were born out of this person's mind. And so whether you like it or not, no one knows and no one understands the way that they speak and why they do what they do the way he does. Not because he's better than you or smarter than you, but because it came out of his mind. Mm-hmm. And sure. and they're literally it's it's his brain you see at work. So, um, and Dave was always very good and respectful, knowing that and calling on George when needed, not for the sake of saying, "Hey George, you know, brace, you know, give me your 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 input just just for the sake of giving it to me." But when he needed George to explain something and to and to 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 gauge and to say, "Well, no, this character wouldn't speak like that," or "Yes, he would do that." Um, like the, the example I gave you with with Yoda in in the mm-hmm. in the music, you know, we we sounded it with him, and we were ready to move one way or the other. As attached as we were, if George had said, "Yeah, but no," because because and George would always say, you know, this this is the reason why yes, or this is the reason why no. And just like any any crew, you know, once the captain says, you know, you can you can be the first officer and kind of bring up and say, well, how about left or right? And you can give your captain an option, but once the captain says, "Got it, let's go right," then you mm-hmm. go right, and and we would we were ready to go one way or the other. In this case, George said, "You're right; it, it, it makes sense, and this is the reason why it makes sense. So let's let's go with it." Um, so yeah, 
I think I think there's definitely that that bond for sure mm. uh, was because of those reasons. I think cool. in terms of so um, cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of uh, favorite moments for me, there's um, there's a lot of stuff uh, through the seasons. The, the the things I mentioned are from the early seasons because this is really where the, the formative and some of the most powerful moments were for me. Uh, there was definitely I had a blast cutting. Uh, I was lucky enough to cut all of the um, uh, the episodes for the Return of Darth Maul. Oh, um, excellent! Was, uh, Good job. It, it was a it was a schedule it was a schedule fluke thing, you know, because like I said, usually Jason and I would split the arcs half half. Um, by then, we had found our formula, and we were doing these three or four four episode arcs mostly, and and we would do two and two. Um, but he was working on one of the another one of the big arcs. I forget which one it was, and and that one was one that he was very attached to. That was very important to Dave as well. I think it might have been one of the ones that uh, Dave had was directing one or two episodes on. So he needed to be really involved with those, Jason. And so he said, well, you're, you're going to cut the Darth Maul episodes. And, and that was one of those moments where I was like, sure. Cause I've, I've always been a huge Darth Maul fan. Uh, yeah. And I was like, okay, this is, we, we gotta, we have to vindicate this guy. You know, he, yeah. he had such a presence in episode one, but so little time. Right. So, um, uh, I was, I was, I was, is, it was really exciting. Um, the directors, all, all the directors I worked with, I was very lucky. Um, you know, we had George was our was our executive producer and, and and de facto kind of the Uber, you know, the ultimate director. Then we had Dave, who was the supervising director, and then we had episodic directors who who um, the editors, myself and Jason, would, would work with for mm-hmm. like three weeks building the soy reels, you know, until the point where they were they were they were tight enough that we could show them to Dave and then cut recut them with him and then show them to George. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the episodics, uh, the episodic directors that I worked with on, uh, generally speaking, they were all awesome, but I had a blast working with them. Stuart Lee, um, was an amazing, su- such a talented guy and, and one of the nicest people I've ever met. Uh, and, uh, he, um, he did the, the night sisters episode, uh, which was great. Yeah. He does a lot of, uh, he does a lot of really moving. He he's very much into uh, dynamic filmmaking. Um, if you watch an episode that's too directed, um, you will you can do that as an exercise. If you mute the sound, you will almost never see a locked camera. There's always some kind of movement. It might not be a huge huge camera move. It might be a subtle push in, but he likes very fluid cameras. Um, and on an episode like that with the Night Sisters, it was it was great because we could do a lot of these kind of classic, you know, scary movie camera moves and and uh, run with the Night Sisters, which was a lot of fun. And then um, in terms of character arcs, I have to to go with Ventress. She is one of my she's m- my favorite character arc um, in the show in the whole series. In that for me. I see a, a wonderful parallel, a mirror between her and Ahsoka. If you look at the two of them, they both start out as apprentice. Mm-hmm. They both start out very devoted and dedicated, uh, almost blindly so, to their masters for reasons that are not all too dissimilar. Um, they both go through a, a, a major break and disillusionment. They both find themselves again on the other side of it and in a way regain their faith, but sort of tempered um, like steel by maturity and, and more re- realism, not, not cynicism. And they both bec- 
become better people, uh, better persons for it. And in my opinion, mm-hmm. and, and and I think that's one of my favorite things, you know, at the end of the series, when they find one another again and work together, that's I remember great. working on those shows and I was like, this, they're like almost the same people now. They're right. very close. You know, they've become their own people. They're neither Sith nor Jedi. Um, they both have a sense of pretty straight moral compass now from, from having been at both extremes and having having ha- had their faith completely shaken and kind of coming back to the middle and being sort of moderate like that. Um, and, and so I was always fascinated by that. And, and, and that made, of course, Ahsoka, you know, she, she, is, she is the character of the Clone Wars. But mm-hmm. Ventress, to me, was always my favorite character arc for the way that she mirrors uh, Ahsoka's path. Um, and then in terms of episodes, you know, I mentioned uh, Leia Grievous as the one that we, we hit uh, a really good note on with George. But my favorite arc, episode arc, was the Younglings. Um, yeah. I feel like uh, huh. we, we hit, the, yeah. Yeah, we hit the, the best balance there. Um, it had, to me, is, is the, the most perfect tempo we ever hit of uh, humor, action, and moments that were serious moments where you laughed um it was it was an awesome episode arc to follow if you were an older fan it was an awesome episode arc to follow if you were a kid it didn't talk down to you so when i when i watched the younglings i i I always feel like this is the closest we came remember when i said george had this mandate that we should always hit for each one of our episodes to to be able to measure up to any star wars movie i think to me personally the younglings arc is the closest we ever came to that um, it, it really feels, and I, and I have to be perfectly honest. Going in, I had doubts. Um, I remember Dave telling me the story breakdown, and I was like, "Man, I don't know if this is gonna work." Um, and and he was like, "No, you'll see, it'll work." Um, I, I can totally, I can totally visualize what George is talking about, and it's gonna be great. And and they were both completely right. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, John, what are your, what are some of your favorite? you know, episode arcs or, or characters or things that, you know, George and Dave and, and Nick helped craft with, uh, you know, the Clone Wars? Well, I, I will say, Nick, I I thank you because it, I haven't gone back and I've watched some arcs, but I haven't gone back and done a, a heavy duty rewatch of the show since it went off the air uh, because it would be like visiting uh, the one that got away uh, because it was such a heartbreak for me when it went away. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, like I, looking at Ventress's arc as a parallel to Ahsoka's was something I had not considered before this conversation. So now my, I, I think I know what I'm going to do with all of my free time this weekend, <laughs> which is go back and and rewatch a ton of things. But and you'll forgive me if I can't remember the exact name of the arc, but there was a. Uh, uh, a story arc where, where a Jedi master uh, who was of Dexter Jetster's uh, race. Oh, yes. it's the Umbara arc. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Where the he, Umbara arc. Yeah, where, where yeah. he went bad. That was planet. that was an amazing arc for, for me. Um, I felt that uh, the, the, the sixth season arc, um, when the, the chips went wrong uh, in, yep. in the one clone, that, that was... An, and I have to say that the Satine arc was something that jumped out at me because 
to give yes. Obi-Wan that relatable arc where if he had approached, if Anakin had thought to ask him, do you understand what I'm going through? Mm-hmm. Obi-Wan could have counseled him better. And then to come back to Darth Maul, the enti- his entire arc, I, I come from a very um, difficult uh, stance where I... I I tend to grow tired sometimes of the the fan appreciation for certain characters. Like Boba Fett, over time, I loved him just as much as anybody else did. But over time, the fan obsession with him wore him down for me. And it actually took uh-huh. the presence of Jango Fett for me to say, oh, that guy's great, again. Um, but Darth Maul, I was extremely... Uh, I was extremely reticent to see him come back at all because I, I was like, oh, oh no, oh no, this could go horribly wrong. But he came back in such a way and using Savage Oppress, okay, first and foremost, using Clancy Brown as a voice, that, that gets my heart anytime. But the entire arc with Darth Maul and Savage, like it, it was amazing to me because by the time that ended, and Savage died. Like I had a totally different read on the characters than I ever expected. And I actually felt such pity for Savage by the end of that. And in a sense, I felt this, I, I don't want to say pity. I don't want to say sympathy, but I felt this relatability to Maul in the sense that he's another broken character, just mm-hmm. like Asajj and just like Ahsoka, where he believed so desperately in this one truth and it's taken away from him and he doesn't he he doesn't know what to do uh, and he ha- you know he finds his way back and he finds his own way but you know that his entire his entire arc when when he was brought back brought back was wonderful but but Matt for you what what worked best for you overall well this is why we're just uh, brothers from another mother because really you've actually mentioned so many of the ones that I love. I, <laughs> for me, I, Obi-Wan being my favorite character and the way that this entire series opened him up as a character. Uh, one, James Arnold Taylor is just a brilliant playing Obi-Wan. Um, nobody quips better than him. Uh, I think his, his Obi-Wan is just fantastic. And um, he's, I think Obi-Wan is the one character because of the way James played him that him and Ewan McGregor's Obi-Wan are in sync with me. Like, I don't think of them as two separate characters, whereas mm. Anakin, you know, Hayden Christensen and Anakin, Matt Lanter, I, there's a disconnect for me because I love Matt Lanter's Anakin so mm. much. Um, my wife even said that when we watched the series, she's like, this, I like this Anakin better. I like the animated Anakin better. Um, and it's cause he's the hero. So, um, I love the fact that, that, you know, Obi-Wan gets that kind of love interest and in that, he really becomes kind of the perfect Jedi. You know, he's the one who can say no and still, I mean, he still loves Satine, but he can say no to that love um, and, and not let it become obsessive. Um, gosh, the, the Mortis trilogy. I mean, you could, you could oh, talk hours and allergy. I mean, yeah, you could talk hours about that. It's just incredible. Um, gosh. Um, I think, the the arc especially there um at the end as well with uh with Yoda 
is just, I mean, that's just pure brilliance of, of George really saying, okay, we need to, I want to explain some things about the Force before we let this show go. Um, I just, I really love that. And I love that it plays in Rebels now because um, the the whole episode where you had Ezra finding his lightsaber crystal and those little balls of, of light that are floating around are back. And that's not Qui-Gon this time, that's Yoda. And it just shows you how much he's learned. Um, and then I think the one that was the real clincher for me, and I knew this show was just something freaking special. I mean, I already knew it before then because I loved it since the movie. But when they did the whole where Obi-Wan goes over undercover and Palpatine uses that to drive a wedge between Obi-Wan and Anakin that will only go deeper was beyond brilliant uh, because it really helped explain that Palpatine has been slowly driving this wedge between Anakin and the Jedi Order, and now he's been able to find a way to do it between Anakin and Obi-Wan, which will really lead to that downfall, why he he can't even trust Mm -hmm. Obi-Wan. And uh, I just, I think that's what made the Clone Wars special, is that they bring something to the rest of the saga. I mean, even later on, I understand why Luke is dealt with in a certain way by Obi-Wan and and Yoda. They've dealt with a Skywalker before. (laughs) And they've seen what happens if they tell them the whole truth and nothing but the truth um, and kind of let them in in a lot of ways. And that leads them to handle Luke in a a way that, you know, maybe they should have treated him differently. He's not just another Skywalker. He's also a whole different person Um, But you can, I just, I love that you can see all that. So I just think that this is a show that, like you said, it, it, it got cut down before it's time. And I'm, I'm sad that that happened. And I'm so glad that certain things are coming back to us. Um, and one of, I just, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that we're getting, you know, the bad batch arc that came online and uh, we're getting the book that's going to come out with the Christy Golding telling the. Yeah, you know the the you mentioned the um the bad batch Matthew. that that's definitely um that that was one if I if I have to it's not really regret but if there's any arc that I wish of the ones we we had a bunch that were that were in in production that were in the run around the time that that we stopped and if there was one that I really wish I I'm so happy don't get me wrong that it actually is now out that you know in in the way that we um, yes. we got and I think I I think I cut I definitely cut two of those. I think it was two or three. Oh, of wow. Them. But, um, I really wish that we had, um, got to finish this one because that was another thing that I know as, as the show lived and grew, um, and, mm-hmm. and, and you kind of like, you know, realize what matters and you sort of become aware of, of the important things. I know that what really, grew in dave's mind was the awareness of how important the clones were not just important in the clone wars but um important in terms of as a a pivotal thing on which to debate a lot of moral issues a lot of a lot of uh, topics almost in the star trek kind of way actually 
uh, from both perspectives of what it is to wage a war, where they come from, why they're there, uh, are they people, are they tools, uh, what's going to become when what inevitably is going to happen that we know is going to happen, you know, Order 66 kicks in. Um, and, and I know that um, there was a lot of stuff that went into Dave's mind um, and George's into crafting these characters, the clones specifically, and with a lot of backstory to motivate all these topics, uh, mm-hmm. going all the way back to you know Numa's story and, and Waxer and Boyle and their choice to to protect this child, all the way to the chips and and what you know some ideas that Dave had for for beyond that, and the fact that Rex is coming back. Uh, and Rebels is a huge thing for me, and I actually talked to Dave about yes. that afterwards That's when I awesome. when I when I saw the trailer because I was like, this is awesome because there's a lot of stuff that Dave had talked about about again what it what the clones meant, and again this is almost a Star Trek thing, like what what they really meant as as a as a pivotal moral thing, you know, uh, 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 kind of a seesaw uh, for Star Wars to talk about certain things, and 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 I know he really had an idea for that that expanded. Uh, pretty widely, and the fact that Rex comes back is is definitely kind of a, a carryover of that, which is so awesome. And the Bad Batch, we're we're gonna be another stepping stone in in that arc of like fleshing out more and more who the clones are, what they are, where they come from, what they mean, the level to which they're bound to what they were made to do, and the level to which they can stray away from that. Um, and, and that, that actually speaks to another thing, which is, you know, both of you guys, I think touched on, which is what, what, what makes Clone Wars special to me in the Star Wars universe is, um, the ability, it's almost like a reverse of the way Star Trek has worked, you know, where Star Trek came, started its life as a TV series, Mm -hmm. um, and then became movies and still TV series, but, you know, expanded to movies. And, but because it started its life as a TV series, it's easier to see, um, to identify what it can do in the, the world of TV that it can never do in the world of movies. And it's not to speak ill of the films, but it's just the constraints of time and, and, and narrative right. and film make it so that you're bound to a much more linear, much more kind of narrow story within, within a, a compressed amount of time, and that has to drive everything. Whereas in TV, you have a world, and it's really about kind of like, you can really say, okay, well, Let's let's look at this this corner of the world, and then as you as you go into that, that starts to expand your mind on like, well, that then that that sh- that kind of motivates why we should go there next, and then you start to really flesh out backstories for everything, places, people, why things happen, which allow you to to expand the realm of the imaginary, but also touch on reality, and that's one of the great things about Star Trek. But I think you know in Star Wars it worked the other way. Um, Star Wars started as movies it has a very type of a very specific type of narrative because it's 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 dna comes from films but then came along this star wars tv show and then what you really saw in that series was that you could actually take the world of star wars which up until then you and you john talked about like for example i think you as well matthew like uh, um uh, Anakin and and the character that Matt crafted over time, and and that is speaks a lot, of course, to the skill of the actor. But the fact that there is a character who's written one way and has to be written one way for for film, mm-hmm. um, uh, in a very linear path. But then 
you have the same character who is a regular on a TV show, and all of a sudden, from this very archetypal, almost mythological-like figure, you can start exploring um, very real day-to-day aspects of his life, which gives everyone, from the writers to the directors to the actor, the ability to flex and expand and create things and craft things um, in a way that you could never do in a film. And I think that was definitely the sandbox that, that George wanted to create, that the, he definitely had that in mind. He spoke a lot of Star Wars you know, being in his mind like a symphony and, and there being movements um, that were recurring, but with different instruments and, mm-hmm. and you know at a different amplitude. And sometimes it's in a crescendo tempo, but sometimes it's slowing down. But you can see sort of like the spiral of life repeating itself. And and I think that you see that obviously that 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 formula that 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 figure kind of work itself into the idea of the TV series because then you have the things that can echo a lot more. You know, you have the figure of the bad father and, and the child seeking acceptance from his father, which is a very universal story. We you know, we all want acceptance from our father. And you see that work into, you can see it work into many, many different characters and many, many different ways in, in the series, which again, you can't, you can't in a, in a movie because you don't have, you can't give each character the opportunity to, to echo that, that, that pattern. Um, in, in the space of four, five, six years, you can start to like say, okay, well, we can see that work, you know, between Anakin and Palpatine, between Anakin and Obi-Wan, between Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon, between, you know, Obi-Wan and Yoda, between Ventress and Dooku, yeah. between Savage and Mother Talzin, and, you know, in, in, in between, you know, Darth Maul, Savage and Darth Maul, between Darth Maul and Palpatine. And all of a sudden you realize, oh my God, there's a theme there. There's this recurring universal theme. And that was definitely something that, that, George wanted to do it. Dave felt and, and grabbed onto and ran with. Um, and then you have this kind of like, as you go, then this nonlinear kind of as as we were making the show, George would realize would start to come up with ideas. Um, and sometimes they were specific about the background of a character. Um, you know, I can tell you because because I remember one one day, like we were on break in one of the sessions, and he started to tell us about this whole backstory, this whole life of Darth Maul, and and it was amazing. What? It was amazing to see these <laughs> ideas that he had, you know, from beginning to end, um, and 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 it could be something as big as the entire mythology. And then you talk about the origin of the Force, and then George started to talk about the living Force and how that was differentiated, and the ideas that became Mortis. And, and these were ideas that George had, had, has kind of all latent in his mind, but then they would, as we were working on specific episodes or discussing specific ideas, then something would, would like the spotlight would shine on, on an area. And all of a sudden he'd say, Hey, you know what? We should actually do something about, about the backstory of this person. Um, Mm. And then that kind of, led to two things which you know you were talking john about like different ways to experience the show watching it or re-watching it there's there's kind of the way that we did it which was with with a uh, a timeline which became more and more focused as we approached the events of episode three and revenge of the sith Mm -hmm. but still had had some like leaps um back and forth in time uh if you watch it in order of of, that it was uh, aired uh, in broadcast order but there's also because George was like 
thinking about these things as we were working on them. He would we would have a character in the background, and George would say, "Oh, but you know why he's there? He's there because while we were on this other planet last season, he was doing this, and we should show that because that would make sense with this other story that we did last year." And and so there's the way you can experience it like that, which is kind of how how it developed. But then also George was conscious of he was like, you know, it'd be awesome because we we were coming up with all these ideas, and once we're all said and done, we can actually give fans the opportunity to also watch it in in a more linear order, where we will give them mm-hmm. a map and and they can have kind of a template of from beginning to end in terms of chronology. These are the events, and so if you want to watch the episodes like that, this is how you can watch them. Where now now you see it all happen in the order that it happened from Monday to Saturday and not Monday, Tuesday, then Thursday, then Sunday, then back to Wednesday. Right. Um, so there there's, and both, both have their, their, their advantages. Cause if you look at like, if you look at, if you look at it from this angle, then you kind of experience the things as they happen. And there's that logic that drives everything. If you watch it the other way, you can kind of fill gaps as you go. Where you're like, Oh my God, I, I know why they're referencing this. They're referencing this because, Right. You know, I was there last week and I saw this and it makes you like makes you feel like you're in on on on, on a kind of a, an inside story. Yeah. I, see, for me uh, personally, the uh, the way that it aired works because it works the way that memory does, where mm-hmm. you can be remembering a certain instance in your life. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait, no, 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 no. Uh, you know, Uncle Bruce was there because. Uh, you know, Ronald didn't have uh, baseball practice that after. You know, and like right, you, you right. sort of fill it in that way. So yeah, you 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 you're to- you're totally right. You fill in blanks in your life. You know this. this you know you you see you see somebody at a at a party and they're wearing you know shorts and it's December and that's kind of like what you experience. But then a month later, you're talking to their brother and they're like, oh, you know, uh, we were we went to the hardware store, we went to the coffee shop before we went to that party a month ago and and uh, uh, and Bob spilled this burning burning cup of coffee on, on his pants and had right. to go back in the freezing cold and put shorts on because that's all he had to wear. And all of a sudden, there's a piece of the puzzle that 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 just dropped in. Right. Yeah. Well, and then it's funny because when I showed my wife uh, the Clone Wars, uh, we were watching Star Wars chronologically. So we were starting from one, going to six, and we we're adding everything in between. So we did the the watch chronologically so that it all flowed story wise. And I love that it works both ways, you know, because you can watch yeah. it chronologically, and it really does tell this great progression. And you see uh, this kind of, and to use the term from the episode on purpose, the malevolence of everything that's happening in the background Mm -hmm. and how much darker it gets. It all really works together till you get to that last, you know, episode with, with Yoda where he has learned that, you know, they are not going to win this war, but there is still hope. And it is just, I think, astounding to watch it that way so it's great that it can work both ways and i think you know and it's kind of what we as star wars fans do anyway these days uh we don't necessarily sit down and watch all six films but we kind of pick one out yeah i'm in a phantom menace mood Eh, you know i want to watch empire you know so the same thing we can do with the clone wars you can watch it as a hodgepodge uh, and enjoy it that way, or you can watch it chronologically or you know so it's it just creates a lot of fun 
Absolutely, and that that's part of the the, the idea of creating this nonlinear thing is that then you can. You know, it's a puzzle that you can you can fit together, but not just to make one picture. You can make several pictures, um, mm. and 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 there's not one that's more right or better than the other. It, it just depends on your mood or which one you gravitate to mo- more. Uh, you know, for example, in in the in the chronological order, there's the, a big picture kind of draw to that, which is definitely part of the, I think almost educational thing that message that George wanted to push through, which is if you kind of look at this big scheming build, building, you know, that was definitely a, a, a message that I think George was trying to get across, which is that a lot of time in real life when bad people do bad things and when they get to a place where they can do bad things, it's not by, by having come forward and said, I'm bad, I'm going to do bad things. They And they actually get, they manipulate people for a long time and get them to actually believe that doing bad something bad is good and by the time you realize that you're on the wrong side of things it's too late um you've already been committed by someone else and through their manipulation to to take this wrong step and i think that's definitely something that george wanted you to be able to experience if you if you chose that path on a more kind of traditional narrative um side of things if you want to take the example of ventress if you for example like I was saying, John, you can you can look at um, through the seasons what are the Ventress episodes, and then just isolate those and watch those yeah. in order um, instead of like experiencing them as they kind of happen. And then if you watch them in chronological order, then you see that that pattern that I was talking about. Then you see that arc clearly mm. of her being kind of the the mirror side, the mirror universe almost version of Ahsoka, <laughs> and 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 go through through a parallel path to Ahsoka's to wind back almost in the same place as Ahsoka is by the end of the series. Um, so there's, there's definitely, you know, again, there's, there's, you can experience it any, any which way and, and neither is, is wrong or right. It's just kind of um, different, different ways to come at it. Cool. That's awesome. It's such vision. Such vision makes that possible. Yeah. These, these guys, you know, I, I, I was, I was really, really blessed, and you know, it's, I think it's kind of fitting to to bring that that particular moment uh, at this point in our conversation. But one of the last um, moments I had in this kind of thread of these these milestone, you know, little little instant, these these vignettes that sort of guided me in in, in knowing that I was kind of in the right path in my life was um, George's last day. Um, we were lucky enough that on his last day, he. And that was after he had announced he was going to retire, after the, the sale had been made public. And um, he came in uh, really early one morning. We got we got a kind of a heads up from from um, his assistant, Jane, uh, who was a dear friend of mine at, at the ranch. She called and, and said, uh, George is on his way. It's his last day. And he really wants to, to stop and, and say bye to you guys. Um, so, and it was, like I said, George an early riser. So it was, it was really early. It was like around eight o'clock in the morning. And she said, whoever, whoever's there, gather the troops and, and come meet him in the in living room. Cause he really wants to come and hang out with you guys one last time and, and say hi. And so he came in, there was maybe 20 or 20, 20, 25 of us there. Um, and, uh, uh, we hung out for a little bit in the lobby and, and, um, chatted, had, coffee and and uh, he kind of shook everybody's hand and and we all said our words to him and um and then he um he said good luck and he turned and and we saw him. it was just like a, a, a moment out of a movie we were in the lobby at at, uh, at the ranch and 
out the doors um, is one of those uh, bronze statues of Yoda in the garden. It's very peaceful. It looks like a, like a scene out of the Jedi Temple. And it was early, the, the just kind of foggy morning, and, and George basically shook our hands and turned around and walked out. Um, and we saw him walk. And, and I remember one of the one of the episodic directors uh, was next to me, and Dave was on the other side. And, and I was Brian Brian Kalen who was a uh, great great director. He's at Pixar now. And he um, he leaned it. He leaned into uh, closer to Dave and I and said, "Are you, you guys just watch this moment and remember it because you're looking at George Lucas just walking away." And, wow. And uh, it was it was I was wow. like, "Wow, this is kind of <laughs> it's you know a big big a small but epic conclusion to a big chapter in my life." It sure is. It, wow. Thank you for uh, sharing that story. Wow, man, you got me. You got me with the feels right now because it it it's almost as if his story and Ahsoka's story were mirroring each other a little bit as he's walking away, and you know it's it's not done yet, and um, you know that was the last that we thought we'd see of Ahsoka when when she walked away, um, and uh, man, just makes me hope that George will do what he's. He's promised and, and do those experimental films and, and just put them online for us to enjoy and watch uh, because I know that there's there's so many people out there who like me and John I, George is an, a pivotal part of who we are today yeah. and how we think about the world and this man is is an incredible visionary um, and he's done nothing but enhance my childhood and given me joy beyond measure and i wish all the best for george um and Absolutely. I, I i you know it's it's fantastic and so i really appreciate you you sharing that story because i think it's it's the perfect place to to kind of be able to come and um and wrap this up a little bit and i i really appreciate you nick because this is um this has been i think just something special uh, you know, I agree. I love getting to hear from 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 Dave on on podcasts and things, and and um, hear about Joel Aaron talk about. But hearing you talk about working with these two titans of Star Wars, um, and and your contribution to that has just been an amazing experience. And um, I I think the listeners will agree with me um, that we are very thankful that you decided to contact us and. I love having you as a part of my life. We email back and forth now a lot, and uh, it's a lot of fun. And uh, so I just appreciate so much you uh, coming on the show. And I'd like to ask you to share if there's anywhere um, for listeners to be able to kind of get in touch with you. I know that you're uh, on the Babel Conference, uh, so yep. that's one way they can do it. Uh, is there any other way that uh, you have online, or is that the best place for people to get in touch with you? Um, that's the best place you can. Uh, I I have a Twitter account though. I'm I'm more of a follower than an active participant. Um, and um, I believe my Twitter. I'm actually, I'm actually going. I'm such an old guy. If my my if my kid was here, he'd be like, "Oh, God, you're embarrassing me." But um, I believe my Twitter account is is Red Nicodemus. I think. Um, my kid my kid actually helped me start it. Of course. Um, 
on the Babel Conference for sure. And um, also, uh, my friend Kevin and I, who Kevin was the associate editor on Clone Wars uh, after I, I got promoted to full editor. Um, he's a terrific guy. Um, he's since then gone back to L.A. and, and uh, is now a full editor. He's worked on a couple of features, and he's worked at uh, Marvel as well. And um, he and I have started a, a, a company that um, is called Moonbase Studios, and we have our own website. Uh, we just we just started now, uh, and we basically that's kind of who we are. Our our, our DNA is these two guys who. Um, dreamed of learning how to make films under George Lucas, then got to live their dream and now, you know, have their have their careers but also want to find a way in their own space and time to make that to honor George's legacy and his ideas and his style of filmmaking in our own way. Um so we we've been bouncing out uh, ideas. Uh, we have our website moonbasestudios.com and and we have something that's gestating which which have we we just started to post the first images and concepts of on there um and which we are in the process of of growing uh, at the awesome. same time as like I said we uh, we follow our each our own career so um uh, you're welcome to go to uh, moonbasestudios.com and and check us out anytime um and uh yeah uh, I think yeah, my my Twitter account is uh, at Red Nicodemus, uh, Red like the color, and and N I C A D E M U S. I just want to um, take the time to thank you guys. I mean, the the pleasure that I've had in sharing stories with you um, is is really really heartfelt, and from the from the bottom of my heart, um, as a fan um, of of all these worlds and these characters and the stories we've talked about, Star Wars and Star Trek, and and, and others, um, and, and as someone who, who has had the story that he's had so far, um, these memories, these experiences, they're who we are, and they're only worth um, something if we share them in whatever way we can. Um, you know, we don't take any, anything with us um, when we move on to the next world other than who we were, and that, that lives on through sharing stories and, and, and feelings. So I think for me being able to to share that with you guys and with all the listeners out there is is a real privilege so thank you very much for mm. for giving me that opportunity well we're very appreciative thank you thank you so much um just uh this has been an amazing conversation and opportunity to to learn and share and um it you know Matt I, I don't want to speak for you but I you know I know that both of us really appreciate you taking the time out of your day uh, mm-hmm. to to speak yes. with us and share your story with everybody. It's my pleasure, guys. Anytime, John. I think both of our Star Wars minds uh, are blown right now, and uh, it and is. I'm picking up pieces <laughs> off the floor right now, Matt. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, and it is. It has been. I mean, beyond fun, beyond a blast, beyond a joy talking about uh, this, the Clone Wars with you and Nick today. But yep. it is not the only thing. I, I know it's not the only thing we've been talking about here on Trek FM the past week. So for you listeners, here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. And I think it was a very anticlimactic thing for a lot of people because they were expecting me to to do, you know, my raw and ranting thing. But instead, I just was like, oh, that's depressing. Okay, bye. Earl Grey. They've now shifted into the 
Biff-controlled 1985. Who got a hold of the almanac in order to turn yesterday's Enterprise? The Enterprise C is the DeLorean in this scenario. The orb. I'd like to see the Borg assimilate Ferenginar, and then they would become bankers. You know, I could see... Oh my gosh, I could see drones. Yeah, yeah. The the world's (laughs) strictest bank ever. (laughs) I'm sorry, you have not paid your loan. You will be assimilated. (laughs) The nanites go into you. (laughs) Yes. To the journey! I... Kind of want something with a little bit more teeth. For some okay. reason, like like starting a garden just doesn't scream mirror universe to me. <laughs> starting a garden doesn't have teeth. <laughs> the ready room. I hate to put it this way, but maybe in, in some strange, twisted logical sense, if Archer just kind of flew on by and didn't help the colonists, the Enterprise D would have never crash landed on Viridian. So Three. it's not Troy's fault. It's Captain Archer's fault. Literary tricks. This is this is something that doesn't get done a lot in books because I don't think the time period's supposed to be that long. Mm-hmm. But what did you end up thinking about having a story take place before where no man's gone before? Well, I thought personally that it was really cool. The 602 Club. My two favorite scenes in the film are Cap saying language <laughs> and then the rest of what the jokes that go with that and then Cap moving the hammer just enough then Thor's face when he can't pick it up is priceless. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Guys, check out these shows. Find out what we've been talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You know you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. Quick shout out right now. Had a great listener feedback on the old iTunes gave us a great five-star review kid at heart 33 in fact they said we were freaking fantastic so I really appreciate that you know if you're an Apple user just hit that subscribe button helps us out greatly giving us star ratings reviews does too Uh, makes it a lot easier for users to find us when they're searching in iTunes if you're not an Apple user we've got you covered guys you can find us on Stitcher TuneIn Spreaker SoundCloud Windows Phone and of course you can download and stream the mp3 file from the website and grab the RSS link as well another really important way to help us out greatly with the network help keeping these shows coming to you each week with this amazing style of content is to become a patron of the network on Patreon we are a listener supported network and Without you guys, we really just can't make this happen. And so go to patreon.com slash trekfm and you'll find all the current goals we have, the different milestone contribution levels. We've got some great perks for you. In fact, the guys that are my associate producers on this show, they get it early, so they get to listen to it before anybody else. You can get exclusive content, producer credit, seats in the content development team, and so much more. We really do appreciate your support. And you'll find all the details, again, at patreon.com slash trekfm. A special thanks to my associate producers, Norman C. Lau and his support of the network and 602 Club. Of course, his Twitter is at Norman Lau, and he's a big supporter of the Star Trek Axonar project. can be found on their official Facebook page as well as the Babel Conference. And you know, guys, now he is the host of Warp 5. And a special thank you to Ken Tripp for his support of this show and the network and of being an associate producer on the 602 club if you'd like to contact us like nick did you can do that at trek.fm slash contact 
You could leave us a voicemail. Look in the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm. You'll find us on Twitter at trekfm, Facebook, facebook.com slash trekfm. And of course, the best place to have any discussion on any show or any other great topic we're talking about is in the Babel Conference. Search the Babel Conference in Facebook or go to the website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. John, I am so thankful that you got to be on this show with us. Uh, it was really just, I think, the force. Tell everybody <laughs> where they can find you on the network. Well, uh, discerning the swirls and eddies of the force, you can find me on Twitter at, uh, at Kessel Junkie, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E. Uh, I do occasionally uh, pop in there over on the Babel Conference, too, of course. And elsewhere on the network, uh, on Trek FM, you can find me with Mike over on uh, Commentary Trek Stars, where we discuss the work of Trek creators outside of Star Trek. And you can also uh, find me on a podcast that I co-host with my buddy Craig called Words with Nerds, where we are discerning the mysteries of this universe. And it's a great show, so I encourage everybody ah, to listen to it. I, I really enjoy listening to it. Uh, well, guys, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can also find me on The Orb with Christopher Jones, talking exclusively about Deep Space Nine. I'm on Literary Treks with Dan Gunther, where we're talking about the books and the comics of Star Trek. And then I've got my own personal blog, where I just write reviews of movies and other things at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. And it's a very good blog, too. Oh, well, thank you. You're welcome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? Mm-hmm.